welcome to the Accomplishment Podcast. I'm Michael Barber. In the Blair years, I was the founder and first head of the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit. Now, I work with governments all over the world to help them deliver for their citizens. And it quickly became clear to me that there's a pattern to accomplishment in government, a pattern clearly visible in countries with very different cultures, very different political systems and very different levels of income. Then I began to see evidence of this pattern in elite sport, in business, in the arts and in the sciences. And I began to ask myself whether there was a pattern to accomplishment that would work anywhere, anytime, with any agenda. In these podcasts, I'm exploring this idea by talking to leaders in diverse fields in order to share thinking and to understand the pattern of accomplishment. Peter Hyman, a former colleague of mine at Number 10 and an inspired policy thinker and speechwriter, is now the guiding force behind a chain of state-funded schools providing education to children from age 4 to age 18. After he left working in government, he started again in the classroom, becoming a teaching assistant. He had big ideas of creating a system where school was more than just a grind for children. Eventually, he became a head teacher and founded the first school in the big education chain just about a decade ago. Since then, the school and the ideas behind it have flourished. Peter's remarkable achievement wasn't just a matter of brilliant ideas, it also depended on the sheer grit and determination of Peter and his co-founders. So what I did whilst being a teaching assistant was I started writing a book which was recording my daily life and daily humiliations with very few skills being plunged into a school. So I wrote about my first day in what was this exclusion room where I was with the so-called naughtiest children in the school who were running rings around me and I was completely at a wit's end of knowing what to do. So all of that was sort of good good ammunition for the book. But what I was trying to do in the book was contrast. It was this two ends of the telescope of thinking, well, what were we trying to do in the sort of big picture and the strategy at number 10? And what was the reality of what was actually going on? So when I was, you know, working one-to-one with a 14-year-old to try and get him through, in those days there were sats at 14 in for, for, for year nines, and he was basically still illiterate and couldn't read very well at all. And he was very disaffected with school. He was part of a gang outside of school. So again, I came face to face with the reality. And what struck me then was not just these sort of great divides, but how actually literacy is one of the biggest divides. That we came from a world in politics, it was so heavily literate. Every word and phrase a politician uses is poured over by the papers to dissemble what does they actually mean by it and have they changed their policy. So we were going from a highly literate, sophisticated world to a world where here was a young person who, you know, was not literate at all. It was a division that struck me at the time as almost more important than the traditional measures of poverty. It was that he couldn't access the world that I had been so much part of. And obviously, crafting speeches as a speechwriter, you're very much part of that as well. And then obviously, you decided that you did like education, and you decided yep. to pursue not just a career, but a vision. I think the subliminal message of a lot of schools is it's going to be pretty grinding, but it's sort of worth it because you'll get your bit of paper at the end of it. You know, and I'd visited some charter schools in America. 
And theirs was all about sort of what would happen at the end. I remember meeting one child in the corridor and I said, where are you going? Um, and I expected them to say, I'm off to the toilet or something. And they said, I'm off to college. You know, it had been so, it would so, been so drummed into every child that what they were there for is to college, that what happened on the way was almost assumed that it would be, as I say, it would be grinding. And I, I was determined to have an education that was just more expansive, that developed the, the whole child that instead of being something to get through was the most, you know, exciting time to be a child and that schools could actually have that variety that really engaged people. So that was at the heart of what the vision and, was. And your school, when you set it up, you have a slogan, I assume it's still there, it was when I visited, that we do beautiful work. And that's making the point that you're at school to do beautiful work today, whether you're a teacher or a student. We had a phrase, today matters, and that was an anecdote to somehow it's all about the future and not today. And then it, beautiful work, and it drew on people like Ron Berger, the educationist in America, was this idea that a child of any age can craft beautiful work given the right training and circumstances. And that at school, the currency should not just be exam grades or the latest te test scores for every child, but should be the quality of the work that they've produced. And that is a... So it's the idea that here and now you can do meaningful things and every child can produce work of real value and real value beyond the classroom. Because what young people are more and more used to because they publish on social media is that it's not good enough to give a piece of work to a teacher and then get that mark, it's actually more important uh, to do work that has a, you know, that, that can transcend the classroom and has real value in the world. And getting used to producing that is really important, I think. When did it dawn on you that actually not only could you be a classroom assistant and a teacher, but you could be a, a school creator, a, a school leader, somebody who'd actually establish something that would turn your vision into reality? Well, I spent four or five years, and they were really important years, at Greenford High School in Southall, which is, a, which is a great school and an interesting school and has a really great learning culture. And I was what, what I think sometimes is the best role in education, it doesn't have the pressure of being a head teacher, but being the deputy head in charge of teaching and learning, you, yeah. can, you can really get your teeth into, you know, what matters in schools and the curriculum and the pedagogy and working with heads of department and teachers on that. And that formed, helped me form a lot of the ideas of what school could be about. So that, that was a period which I really enjoyed. And, you know, I, want, and I spent deliberately, a, you know, quite a long time doing that to really learn the craft of that and having come in from a different you know, um, role beforehand and, and being a sort of career changer, I felt I needed to immerse myself properly in that in order to learn what really made schools tick. So I'm going to cut to 2010. The Cameron Coalition was put together. Michael yep. Goh was Education Secretary. Quite rapidly, he created the Free School Opportunity. And this was your moment to actually set up a school to implement the vision that you've just been describing. Yeah, and of course you as you know, with a crucial person in that because you did a professional matchmaking exercise because you, you got me to meet up with Ed Fido, who you'd, right. who you'd known through McKinsey. So we had a breakfast in Islington 
having never met before, but you were the person who put us together. And it was it was exactly like a professional blind date because we had this great breakfast. We thought we were really aligned. We then went off and we had that sort of dilemma, a bit like a real date, as to sort of whether to call each other immediately or whether that would show sort of excessive keenness or whether to wait a little bit and play hard to get. And actually, Ed was off doing something else where he was uncontactable for two or three days. So I sort of got, I got a bit nervous that he wouldn't actually want a second date. But we we got together again and really hit it off and then... Then we got together with Ollie de Botton, who and, and formed this three of us to uh, to found the school. One of the things that in my work on accomplishment, not just in government but in a whole range of fields, is this idea of a guiding coalition, the small number of people who can turn a vision into reality. It's very rarely one person who turns yep. a vision in reality. So Ollie and Ed were key figures in that. Were there other people? That, that you needed to draw on to put your vision together and to, to put in your proposal for a, for a free school? Yeah, I, well, there was a lot of different influences. And, I mean, it's worth saying about those two. I think they just had interesting backgrounds. I mean, um, Ed had been a theatre director, then he'd been at McKinsey's. Ollie was in the first cohort of Teach First. He'd then risen to senior leadership that way, but then had been out doing consultancy in different ways within education and beyond that. And he'd also been a local councillor, so he'd got a sort of political perspective. So again, people were drawing on different um, expertise and we, you know, we were united by sort of several themes. One is, I think, you know, and which developed into a theme about oracy at the school and the spoken word. We all, whether through theatre directing, whether through politics, whether through speech writing, all had that love of language, love of sort of English literacy, oracy, spoken word, which formed a, a sort of spine. We sometimes call it the golden thread. One of the things I noticed, and uh, you, you showed me in action in your school, is how things like assemblies as well as lessons getting children, young people to speak, that it became a requirement for everybody to be able to present to the whole school. Is that still part of the model? That's still part of the model. And oracy, which I'm completely passionate about, speaking should have the same status as reading and writing. It is odd and strange the way we privilege reading and writing. Uh, We assume because, you know, children can talk from about the age of two or three that somehow it doesn't need to be properly taught in the way that other things do. I also think very strongly it is a moral cause, the speech, because it is the biggest barrier for a lot of young people to get on in life. They can't articulate their ideas. So finding your voice to me is both metaphorical. We all strive in our lives to have our voice heard, but it is also you know, a series of techniques and pedagogies to to develop that model. So we think it's a whole culture. It is what you do in assemblies. It is what you do in what the academics call the dialogic classroom. So some people think speech is about either public speaking or debating. Now, they're both important, but that's not the main part of it. It's about the small interactions, the one-to-one, the small group work. It's having that range of context and settings for talk and teaching children to move agilely between different registers and different types of talk, which is absolutely fundamental. So to go back to the story, you've left number 10, you've developed a vision, you've found your 
guiding coalition with Ollie and Ed. And you mentioned that you wanted to talk about some other influences. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that we read about. I mean, there was one particular moment where we visited a charter school in America. That was one of the founding sort of pieces of thinking about oracy, because I saw an assembly there that was in the round and this head teacher was there with sort of drums beating as the children came in and formed the circle. And he told this story where they just sort of seamlessly were acting out parts of it. And it struck me then that the, there, was, there was a fusion of drama and oracy and storytelling and communi- really importantly, community building. And one of the centrepieces, which sound, can sound sort of glib possibly, but I think is absolutely uh, central to the school, is we've operated in circles in the school rather than in rows. So there is something deeply powerful, and there's obviously great cultural resonance in the circle. You know, that rows is always someone at the back. The circle, if you're, if you're sitting with your staff and within the the school there's no hierarchy everyone's in the same circle everyone can see each other there's nowhere to hide um everyone is part of the same community there is something very powerful so you know on on the first day of our new school i'd worked with a drama teacher who became very influential daniel schindler in the school and we we formed what we call this strong circle and these 11-year-olds who'd come from all these sort of disparate primary schools were there in our porter cabins as we were in year one. And this drama teacher then started to do, this is really a sort of seminal moment, started to do what, what, what was called forum theatre, where he acted out this sort of dishevelled 11-year-old who couldn't get their act together to get their bags ready for school and was... You know, and that is, is, he'd branded this, he was a themed, a character who was a theme throughout the schooling in, called Colin Chaos. So this drama teacher acted out Colin Chaos. And then in forum theatre, you get the audience to then participate. But of course, our 11-year-olds had no idea this was about to happen. So the drama teacher just paused after five minutes of acting out Colin Chaos and said, so who wants to play my mother? And there was complete silence for at least a minute and it felt like sort of 25 minutes. And then this girl just stood up, this is her first day of high school, and just walked to the centre of this circle and started berating this drama teacher about why they hadn't got their act together and packed their bags and got organised. And then someone else, just without being asked, started acting out his brother and was doing the sort of similar thing. And what I'd realised, in you know, and I think only the best drama teachers in some ways, well, the other teachers can as well, He'd formed this safety within only a few minutes of the school and this strong circle in which people could be themselves and could gain confidence and had you could use oracy techniques. And in a sense, we never looked back. That was the formation of this sense of how we built community and how we use circles to empower everyone. But there was a lot of work that you probably prefer to forget between <laughs> submitting your proposal and actually getting a school off the ground you mentioned the porter cabins but you had a lot of difficulty getting first of all getting the proposal through the dfe dealing with all the bureaucracy uh, etc and then dealing find, finding a place to set your school up it, it, you you you, you yeah. chose newham but actually finding a building it was, it was a bit of a drudge and frustrating wasn't it yeah, it was a nightmare, partly because the policy was also so new that the sequence wasn't right. So the government didn't approve us 
until after the deadline where parents had to put their names down to choose a school. So we had to go to parents without a school site, without any teachers, without a curriculum, with nothing, and saying this school is going to open in a year's time and we're not sure where it's going to be, but trust us to put your name down. And then building the school... Obviously, none of us had any experience at all, and we were sort of left slightly high and dry by the department, who didn't give us on our side the expertise to second-guess what was going on. So a lot of mistakes were made on the way, but we had to decide on, you know, exactly what door handles to use, to how much glazing do we want on the classrooms, to, you know, all of that. We were in endless, endless meetings. It was uh, a complete minefield, whilst having to sort out the curriculum recruit the first set of staff, which we were completely painstaking about because we thought the first teachers had to really understand the vision and be expansive and not it couldn't just be business as usual. Um, so, you know, and we, we advertised in different places. For the English teacher, we probably had six rounds of interviews. Um, I phoned up every single contact who I knew in terms of English and we finally found this teacher who proved to be you know, completely outstanding. The point I want to bring out about getting great accomplishments done is, probably I'd best put it, quote Dave Brailsford, I asked him about why Chris Froome was able to do these amazing feats of cycling and win the Tour de France all the time, and he said sheer bloody-mindedness. <laughs> um, obviously, he's a great cyclist, but, but there's, there's a lot of that in what you just described, isn't there? Getting the building off the ground, choosing the hand, you know, a lot of the detail, pushing things through local and national bureaucracies, yeah. um, and you have to put a lot of hard yards in just to get the first set of teachers and the first set of students. Yeah. And the teachers who came to you, why did they come? Was it, was it your magnetism? I, I, I definitely doubt that. But I think what it, what it was, was we did have a compelling vision that felt more expansive. And it's hard to overstate how much teachers feel. I mean, a lot of them are saying this, having been released during COVID. They say we've been released from the treadmill. And I think so many teachers felt they were on a treadmill uh, the way schools normally have to operate with the twin pressures of Ofsted and exam, high-stakes exams. There is a sense of treadmill. And I think what we were offering them, of course, you know, sometimes I think we probably, you know, oversold this as being that different because we still did have to operate with Ofsted and we did have to operate with high-stakes exams. But I think people thought that here was a start-up that could try and do things in a more expansive way. So I think that was, I think that was very appealing to people. Yes, and then, and then obviously once you got going and teachers, potential teachers come and visit, they, they were probably often inspired by the kinds of teachers you've been referring to in the interview. So yes. it, got, it got easier once. You know, so again, some of the things we, you know, we don't like just going with the orthodoxy. So a lot of people setting up schools thought, if you just get young teachers who are sort of fresh out of university, maybe young teach first, then, you know, you pack the school with that and all will be fine. And I just thought, there's just no logic to that. You don't want your first teachers to all be inexperienced because people are setting the parameters for the school. They're deciding which pedagogies and what curriculum and what and how the school should run. So actually, you want a really good blend and you want some incredibly experienced teachers who can start to sort of you know, collaborate with each other and produce something extraordinary, which is, as you say, then inspires 
the next lot of teachers to come in behind. And we deliberately appointed, not, not sort of yes people, which again is, I think, another big lesson, but to be comfortable appointing mavericks and interesting people. And everyone we appointed had something to offer beyond their kind of traditional subject or their traditional way of thinking. They were people who wanted to put more into the school than the obvious. And we found in the first year, occasionally to our cost, they were absolutely impossible to, you know, there was, a, you know, I'd say like, like herding cats, but in the best possible way that they were thoughtful and they just didn't, we didn't want them just to say yes to everything. We wanted them to question it and work in ways that produced extraordinary results. What's the next big accomplishment for you? Well, what we've got to do, and I'm now working with Liz Robinson as co-director of Big Education, is we're trying to do the thought leadership and really inspire people for a more expansive education. We're then trying to produce the tools and um, the products that we can offer to schools to help them provide a more expansive education. And then we're trying to support leaders and others with, again, toolkits and giving them, emboldening them to take this journey to a more expansive education. So that's really our mission because we believe it's possible. And critical to that is still reforming Ofsted and assessment because it is the biggest block to that. So sometimes when I think about it, I do think we've done really interesting things at School 21, but I also believe we're at the foothills because I think we've done what we could do within very powerful constraints and we haven't you know I talk about balancing head heart and hand that's our version of an expansive education head academics heart growth and well-being hand problem solving and creativity I'd like the balance to be more like a third a third a third well what is it even at our school because of that high stakes exam pressure it's probably 70 or 80 percent on the on the head and far less on the heart and the hand, even though it's the heart and the hand, as we've seen in COVID and many other examples, that is so crucial for humanity, for human development, for what makes us enjoy life. And yet it's neglected so much because of the way, you know, the incentives within the system that need to change. So I think we're at the foothills, but our big mission as big education is to be able to push the boundaries of what's possible and get reform within that. So success is demonstrating that there's a different way and then persuading at system level that there should be a different way with fewer of the constraints that that hold you back and more of the encouragement for the things that you think are fundamental to communities and students in the future. Yeah, and, and I think we've, we discuss this a lot. I think it's got to be top down and bottom up. We've got to influence policymakers and politicians and the, the system, but we've got to provide enough exemplars and beacons and case studies of what is possible so that people do think, well, it can be done and there are ways of doing that. And we can do that in a whole number of ways. In my work with universities here in England, normally what people want to talk to me about is all the things that get in the way of them doing what they want to do so the strap line I've used in all my speeches is golden ages don't have to be in the past and uh, thinking about the school system maybe uh, you what you're envisioning is a golden age in the future and building towards it totally and I think we've just got to realize that sometimes we are so insular in this country in a whole number of ways. And actually, if we look internationally, if we learn how to horizon scan a bit better, then there are examples from around the world of people wrestling with with this 
idea of having, yes, having the knowledge and the academics, but broadening out what education is about. And everyone's grappling with that in a way that I think is going to produce some real creativity and a lot that we can learn from in this country. Peter, look, it's been a great conversation. I've very much enjoyed uh, listening to you. And I really appreciate the thought you put into the conversation, but more, more importantly, the work you've done over the last 10 to 15 years to turn into a reality what you've just been describing to us. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a great honour and pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast. And my thanks again to Peter Hyman. I'd love to hear your stories of change. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment. It's available at all good booksellers. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and the rest of the team. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss these great game changers telling their stories of how to get things done.